You're listening to the December 17th, 2014 edition of The Close-Up, the Film Society of Lincoln Center's weekly podcast series. This is Brian Brooks. And this is Eugene Hernandez. In today's episode, six-time Oscar nominee Mike Lee is our focus. British director Mike Lee returned to the New York Film Festival this fall with his latest film, Mr. Turner, featuring an amazing performance by actor Timothy Spall, who was named Best Actor Earlier This Month by the New York Film Critics Circle. The film takes a look at the last quarter century of the great and eccentric 19th century British painter J.M.W. Turner. After the death of his father, Turner finds comfort with a cheerful widow on the coast, played by Marion Bailey. He has an artistic base at his family home in London, maintained by the subservient Hannah. She's played by Dorothy Atkinson. But his stays in both houses are only rest periods between endless and sometimes punishing journeys in search of a closer and closer vision of light. Mr. Turner will be opening in theaters here in the United States beginning this week. Mike Lee has had a number of films screened at the New York Film Festival, including in 2010 with Another Year, Happy Go Lucky in 2008, and Vera Drake in 2004, among others. He's as well known for his working methods as he is for his finished films. Throughout lengthy periods of exploration and improvisation, Lee and his collaborators build their characters and narratives from the inside out. They create movies that seem to have been woven from the very fibers of lived experiences. Mike Lee sat down with Amy Tobin for an extended conversation about his latest film and his extensive filmmaking work as part of the Film Society's HBO Director's Dialogue during the New York Film Festival. Let's go now to that conversation. So I thought that since most people here have probably seen Mr. Turner, is that true? Um, but might want to talk some more about it. I thought we'd start with Mr. Turner and then kind of branch outward and backward in your history. Um, I've seen the film twice. And those of you who've seen it, this is not a spoiler. The film, the last line in the film is what Turner says when he's dying, and he says, the sun is God. The opening image of the film is a landscape or a skyscape with the sun dead center in the frame. And the, the image holds uh, still, and you realize, if you've seen the film, if you've looked at Turner, that this is what Turner painted, this is what inspired Turner, but then the camera begins to move. It begins to move laterally, uh, so the sun is no longer in the center of the frame. And once he's moved, it's the camera's moved. There's a bit of action with two women and Turner in the background. And then there's a cut. And the cut changes the perspective. And I wondered if you were very conscious and wanted to set up this film as a dialogue between how you represent 
in painting and how you represent in moving images? Um, if I understand what you're saying, I don't know that I consciously was concerned, or indeed whether that I am concerned, with a dialogue as between painting and film. I think that's what you're talking about. Um, because I think um, whilst as a filmmaker with my collaborators, particularly with my cinematographer collaborator, Dick Pope, whilst as a filmmaker I am, have all, am and have always been concerned to explore and enjoy and exploit and um, enjoy the succulence of the cinematic experience for its own sake. Nevertheless, I'm not really concerned with, the, the, with what you might call the self-conscious film experience. So, you know, making the film, one is constantly aware of what one is doing cinematically, and the, the film is, um, of course, not a documentary, this film, nor is it, nor do I ever really do what you could in any way call a kind of accidental verite. It's very considered. But at the same time, just as you don't think about the pen in your hand when you're writing, um, I don't specially spend the whole time thinking about the film we're making as an artifact in its own right, you know, it is a tool to look at the world. So, you know, the, the, in other words, if I understand you, the dialogue between film and painting is implicit rather than a conscious uh, running exercise. Um, you made another film, and it's a period film, about great artists, uh, Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, which has, which is slightly different because they made operettas, they made musical theater. Um, have you ever had another character in your film who was a visual artist? I mean, a major visual artist? Uh, no, no, this is the first time. And and so I guess what I'm asking: Did that present? questions and problems no. to you? Well, I mean, the challenge, um, which I would like to think we've kind of met, uh, it was to, uh, you know, you could make a film about any artist that just depicted life and activities and actions and things without any um, conscious or obvious visual reference in the actual film itself to the work of the artist. You could do that. But it seemed to us, seemed to me, uh, f fundamentally eccentric not to make a film about Turner, which um, took on board the spirit of Turner and the look of Turner and the quality of Turner and the tone and the palette um, uh, and the colours of Turner and all of those things are deliberately there in the way that we've visualized and shot the film. Of course, there are moments in the film where we've actually deliberately, uh, to use a slightly cruder word than it deserves, replicated actual paintings of Turner. It happens two or three times. Um, so that the opening image that you are referring to doesn't actually replicate any particular painting of Turner. But I did think it was important 
at the beginning of the film to say implicitly, straight away, we are looking at the, you know, what Turner saw and how he responded to it. Um, a related question has to do with uh, digital post-production. Um, many people now say that working digitally, uh, particularly in post-production where you have such, you can do such fine work with color, is in a way closer to painting than to making films. And this is your first digital feature? It's the first digital feature. That's to say it's the first feature we've made <coughs> shot on a digital camera. And uh, although we made, we made a short just before this one, um, we made a, a comedy for the Olympic Games in London called A Running Jump, which we, uh, uh, where we experimented and used the digital camera. Um, I think when people say that, that, I can see what that means. Plainly, what you do um, in, in a Photoshop kind of way is you can, and we did, and you do, um, uh, use the palette and the facilities and the tools of digital post-production to enhance, to change things, to, I mean, and you, you, you do, as it were, paint with the material. I think it's frankly academic to say it's more about, more like painting than cinema, because it actually is an extension of what cinema is. Um, so we shot the film digitally, and indeed there, and, but, but even in that process, some people here know, um, you make sophisticated and technical decisions that are visual decisions. But we absolutely, for sure, um, used the scope of post-production, of digital post-production uh, techniques to enhance and change and paint and modify in a way which is magic and absolutely um, indispensable for us making a film about Turner. Because, I mean, one of the most remarkable things for me about the film it, is it is Turner's palette on the screen. Uh, absolutely, and, and um, it, it, obviously we spent a huge amount of time looking at the paintings, but also, you know, there's a scene in the film where um, Turner refuses to sell his entire output to a millionaire who offers him 100,000 pounds, which really happened, of course, because he wants it to go to the nation to be looked at altogether for nothing, for free. Um, go to London to the Tate Britain and the Paternal Bequest is that collection of paintings and all sorts of drawings and stuff. And in and amongst all that stuff in the archive there, which was opened to us and we had full access to it. Um, are Turner's color charts, hundreds of them, which he tabulated, and, and it's all very, uh, I mean, he was very, I mean, the scene in the film where um, Mary Somerville, the scientist, is sharing with him the stuff about the light and the prism and all the rest of it, and magnetism, it was very, he was very um, <coughs> concerned with <coughs> the whole thing and the potential of color and what it, you could do with it. And, what its scope was. He had a very specific palette, uh, range of colors and tones, and those are the choices that Dick Pope made 
in, uh, to put on the screen. You have made two films, uh, I think only two films, in the 19th century. And they both are uh, concerned with people who are artists, and really more than artists, they are, you know, icons of British culture, uh, of English culture, actually. Um, no, no more, I mean, Gilbert and Sullivan and Turner, you can't be more English than that. And I think I want to ask, did one film, did doing the topsy-turvy make you want to work in the 19th century again, but with a different kind of character? Uh, it wasn't so much the 19th century. Actually, I just want to take, um, I just want to pick up on a minor, what well, I think you said, which may not be to the central right. theme of the discussion, but I, uh, it's interesting that you said that, that um, Gilbert and Sullivan and um, Turner, and you can't get more English than that. I think that may be true, um, but I would say that um, for, all, for all their greatness, Gilbert and Sullivan are, do not have the universality um, uh, and the eternal, sublime, and profound uh, qualities that Turner had. Turner is a, is a great artist on the international stage. Um, I think within uh, a spectrum that would include Offenbach and uh, probably Donizetti and some others, you could include Gilbert and Sullivan, but I don't think they are the, vis the visionaries that Turner is. I, I just wanted to throw that in, really. Um, but that's not, to, that's not answering your question. That's an aside. Right. Um, I mean, there is no doubt that Turner is a major artist and a visionary romantic. Yes. And, um, and, and Gilbert and Sullivan are, wrote the most entertaining theater pieces probably uh, anyone ever wrote. And I think they uh, have enormous, their work has enormous longevity because of that, and because no one really followed them. I mean, it's an odd thing. Rothko is also a great, sublime, visionary artist. I can't think of anyone else like Gilbert and Sullivan. Fair dues. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten your main question. So, okay. Um, did you think, I want to fool around in the 19th century some more with a great artist? No, I didn't particularly. I mean, I, 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 look, it's quite a complicated question. I, for some reason, I've always had a strong sense of the 19th century. I suppose the reason is because I'm old enough, I was born in 1943, so, I mean, I... Uh, and I grew up in Manchester, which is a great Victorian city. Uh, you know, my our people of our generation, our grandparents were born around 1880. Uh, we were taught in school by Victorian people. We went, in, we went to Victorian schools. You know, Victorian things hung in the recent air. Um, so in that sense, there was a very str strong sense of certainly the late 19th century. Um, after we'd made Topsy Turvy, it did, it did start to occur to me that a film about Turner would be a good thing. Here's an interesting thing, given that Turner, uh, that Mr. Turner um, set earlier in the 19th century, uh, the dates actually are 18, uh, 25 to 1851. Um, people have said to me, how do you... Um, 
handle this dialogue, which was so antique, so archaic, so far in the distance. And then I reflect that, well, actually, Turner died in 1851, which is actually only 92 years before I was born, uh, which is to say about the equivalent of 1922 or something. So it's actually, it, that world also hangs in the recent air. All of which is to say that were I perversely to decide to make a film set in the 11th century, <laughs> I think I would find it very difficult to know how to bring it to life in, in a way that was actually anything to do with how it really was, basically. So, it, not so much the 19th century that motivated Mr. Turner, it's just that having done Topsy Turvy and being interested in Turner, it then did seem to be uh, a possibility. But having said that, I have a fascination for the 19th century. Well, this is a side issue coming off what you said. Have you ever considered making a film that was not set in England uh, using British actors? Um, the only time, two times I've deviated from doing that was I, may I, because I do plays as well, working in the same that I do. I did a play in Australia in the late 80s about the Greek Australian experience, and that was that, it wasn't a film. And I also made the last television film I made, which was called Four Days in July, was set, was all about Northern Ireland and the conflict. Now you may say, but hang on, that's part of Great Britain, but actually it, it is a foreign country from the point of view of we who have lived our lives in England. Um, to answer the question, I, on the whole, not specially, not particularly, but not so much, that's not really a function of insularity or, you know, um, uh, little Englander mentality. It's more that I think it's healthy for artists, filmmakers not least, to make films that come out of their own culture. Um, not least in the case of filmmaking, because there are, we have our actors, we have our film industry, our infrastructure, and I very much want to be, support that and stimulate it. But the real point is that I, without wanting to sound pretentious or presumptuous, I mean, I um, think that what I do is to make stories that are, in the end, universal. You know, they are, my films are about living and dying and, you know, being parents and being children and relationships and work and surviving and all of those things. And so I, because it's convenient and it's, a pro, it's there and it's cheap and it's where we are, um, we make these, I've made a, all these films that are in surface terms and in culturally and so forth, are set in England or in Britain, as you choose, to, as it's just apparently still called after some recent events. Um, and, um, uh, but, but going beyond that in the actual substance and uh, resonance of the film. So in other words, they're not, I, I hope I don't make films that are in any sense um, esoterically 
or insularly English. The, the subject matter is, uh, uh, expands, but the milieu is where we are. Yes, and I think this gets us to something I know you don't like to discuss because you're so bored with discussing it. Um, the work with the actors, and particularly the work that will eventually evolve into a text in the film, I've always presumed that it would be impossible to do unless you were working with uh, language and people who, you know, the, your ear was the same. I don't, know, I don't know how else to say it. If you got a bunch of people from Southern California together, I, I can't imagine how that would happen. So the film, the themes are universal, but the specifics of the characters and what the characters say and how they behave and um, run the gamut of every kind of English person, you know, anyone has ever known. Uh, and specifically English. So that's what I was trying to get at. Yes, I mean, and that's right. Uh, um, uh, from time to time, we have characters that aren't English, in fact. But that's a technicality. The real point is that what it's about, so far as I'm concerned, is it's about people. All people are interesting. It's about, that's on one level, it's the work that is the work about and for intelligent character actors. That's the people who are really uh, bright and sensitive and have their antennae out and have a sense of society and who are not actors, as many actors are, for narcissistic reasons, but because they really are driven to represent real people, like real people out there in the street. And thus, we're talking, um, when I say character actors, about people, with reference to what you're saying, about people who have the ability and the skills to do, to be, to act, people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of cultures within whatever particular territory we're talking about. Um, so it's a job of um, galvanizing stimulating and creating a, uh, an environment in which act actors can, my actors, can explore and create with me characters who are three-dimensional representations of people that become people that are just like real people uh, of all shapes and sizes. Um, sometimes it's an, in with reference to the question, sometimes it's an enormous an advantage and a joy for an actor to tap into her or his particular background or region or whatever. And sometimes it's a joy and a delight and highly stimulating for the actor to go into a whole other area and do different um, cultures and backgrounds and accents and so forth. I mean, you have just such... I mean, your collaboration in this film with... Uh, Timothy Spall to to create this character is amazing. That's not to say that the film is not filled with just amazing performances, but this particular character 
who looks like something out of Bruegel or Lucian Freud, and who then paints this, these, you know, light. It's the, the tension between the man down there and, and, the and what he sees is extraordinary. And I, so I wondered, you know, how this evolved. Well, first of all, what you've just identified is precisely what I thought was worth making a film about, the tension between this flawed, uh, eccentric, complex individual that one can read about and this sublime, epic work. Um, well, um, we read, we did our research, we looked at the stuff, of course, the painting, we went to the places. Um, in the end, you know, all the research in the world doesn't make it happen, come alive. So, you know, we did what we always do, which is to sit down and to think about real people, real people that Tim knows, that I know, uh, just to use, as a, to pull together sources for a living characterization. But in the end, I mean, the bottom line is we, we informed by the research, we made him up, basically. You know. um, he grunts a great deal in the film. Uh, some people have, extra with extraordinary amnesia, have written about it and said that he only grunts and he's non-communicative. It's not true. Uh, Turner was extremely, could be extremely articulate. He was very well versed in the classics, classical references. All of that is there in things that he says. Sometimes he talks very flat, in a very flowery and elaborate way. Sometimes he's extremely monosyllabic. Sometimes he just grunts. Um, and all of those things, in the first place, as it happens, uh, was suggested by what people said about him at the time. But in fact, then we integrated into an organic characterization. And to continue along that line, the two, well, there are many women around Turner. And that's very interesting because obviously Turner has had terrible problems with women that go back to the history of his family and his mother and, uh, and his alliance with his father comes out of their mutual hatred of, their, of, of the mother-wife. Mother but I was really struck by how many women there were in this film and how filled out they were as characters. Even, um, who is it, Leslie, who has that tiny role as the scientist, and there is this full woman on the screen, but mostly what interested me was the difference between the woman who lives in darkness, who is the maid, and who is, you know, totally subservient and really quite destroyed, uh, um, probably before she ever meets Turner, but falls into that. Um, and the woman who he meets at the end, who is really a person of the light. I mean, she has the light around her. She lives in light spaces. Um, and I just wondered in the structure of the, the narrative, it isn't to say they are one-dimensional, but each of them represents one aspect 
of a relationship to him. I, I think that's right. I mean, you have uh, his ex-partner, who is the mother of his uh, daughters, both of whom are adult female characters in their own right. Um, and that's a dysfunctional relationship, as mm -hmm. it was. Uh, you have this very devoted housekeeper, rather than maid, who, um, in fact, in historically lived with him, looked after him for 40 years, with whom, whose relationship in the film uh, becomes sexual. We invented that. That's not, um, there's no historical evidence for that. But it did seem to us, it came very organically and naturally out of a function of the characters and the whole thing. And it seemed very uh, right to us. And then, as you say, uh, he has the relationship with Mrs. Booth, the seaside landlady who lives, you very properly say, in light. Uh, there's also an important visit to a brothel, um, which happens immediately after his father's death. And I suppose I won't talk, analyze that scene too much if you haven't seen the film, but I think it's important, that's an important part of the thing that you're talking about. I mean, it just seemed all these, uh, um, all of these, elements, including Mary Somerville, the scientist, uh, that Leslie Manville does, um, all of them come from th act the actual women who were in Turner's life. But the actual... Um, uh, 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 but, 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 and, they do, and they presented themselves to me naturally. Uh, the dynamics, the dynamic of the combination of them, did present itself to me in a very naturally, and do sort of bring out different sides of Turner and throw light on him from different angles, for sure. Um, to be specific uh, in terms of working with those actors, I mean, I think many people in the room have either read or heard Mike Lee talk about his improvisatory method and how uh, the actors evolve their characters, and as he's just said, how he, um, they bring in possibilities of people they know or seen in real life to, um, I mean, I think you once said that David Thewlis brought in 100 people to arrive at the character in Naked. Sally Hawkins holds the record with a 220-something <laughs> before we made Happy Go Lucky. But what does that mean, to bring in? Well. It's a practical thing in a way because, I mean, starting from the fact, the premise that it's not just about actors just playing themselves, which it certainly isn't. And, you know, uh, I, I sit one-on-one, one-to-one -one with each actor for long stretches of time with nobody else in the room. My job as a dramatist is to come up with a bunch of characters, each played by one of the actors. So what we do is to talk about all kinds of possibilities, and I'm finally, my job is to finally say, well, and we talk about them till I really understand them. We whittle them down and weed them out and get down to the source, a source, or several sources, usually, um, which we then sort of meld together. And it's just a way of, it's, you know, 
this is a film about an artist, of an artist. This is, you know, an, art, an artist gets out there with a sketch pad and sketches what he or she sees and uses it and distills it into the, the final work. We're doing the equivalent, really. But it's a way of me being able to bring, to have choices, to, to start to construct a character that's not just a random character um, who is a, a mere function of the actor's personality or something, but it's more carefully constructed for, dr for dramatic purposes. Okay. To continue a little bit about this, because I know that everyone is fascinated with how you work with actors. Um, two things have always seemed very important to me. Once you stated, and this is really a misconception that people hold about acting, that you and the actors do not refer to the character in the first person, um, but always in the third person. In other words, uh, he is not, uh, Timothy Spall is not Turner, but Turner, the character, is separate from Timothy Spall, but he acts as if he were Turner. Yes, when he's, it's very straightforward, this. When the actor's in character, mm -hmm. and the actor is in character, and the actor's in, inside the character, and of course, you know, it, 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 that's what it's all about. But in order to, there are two things. One is in order to then construct things dramatically, mm -hmm. the actor has to come out of character and believe that this person exists within the world of the thing. And the person, you know, the person is not, the character is the character, not me, the actor, but him or her, the character. Um, a lot of the work that goes on, a huge amount of it, is what happens in improvisations, which is to say, the actor goes into character, goes into situations, in real time, for long periods of time, and goes through experiences. Now, if, it's very, if it becomes very emotional, or indeed very physical, or very violent, or whatever it might be, um, I'm, I'm just illustrate, this is just to illustrate the point. Of course, not all situations are that. But if it does, and the actor doesn't come out of character, the actor stays in character, I can't work with the actor and say, okay, what happened and what did he feel? What did he... The actor will be very subjective about it. So it's, a, it's, apart from anything else, at the crudest level, it's a safeguard against that. But it's mostly, it's all about the actor starting, the actors and the, all of the actors, to start to believe that these people exist in this made, this fictitious world we're creating, as opposed to merely being a thing that I am doing when I'm acting which is a lot of, lot of acting is. So it's a, you know, it's, 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 it's a discipline that liberates the creativity. But that's all it is. It's, this is a technical aspect of the thing. And I just have one other question because this is something I've always been curious about. Um, you have characters in this film, for example, the character of um, the woman at the end uh, that Marion Bailey plays. Now, if you bring her in and you do an improvisation with her separate from Turner and the people she's gonna meet later, that seems to me to be fine because she already is a full person before she's met Turner. Absolutely. But 
if you take a character like the maid, who is actually produced by her interaction with Turner. No, it's not true. Okay. She, uh, no, she, she's like, she, in fact, all the work we did with her in the first place with her aunt, who's Turner's mistress, and then with Turner. Um, and then she did work with the, f but she was, she's defined by her background. She's as three dimensional before she meets Turner as anybody else. Obviously, Mrs. Booth, you're right, in the sense that Mrs. Booth has had a longer life. But the principle of all of it is that the characters have to exist uh, three-dimensionally anyhow. Of course, she is more defined by Turner because she spent a whole lifetime with him. But she's not only defined by Turner. Doing, I, I want to very quickly get off just acting. Oh, good. And <laughs> I know, I know. And talk about editing. Um, I mean, you have a long, ongoing relationship with your cinematographer, Dick Pope, who you've worked on many features with, but you change editors often. I, I have, but only through force of circumstance, uh, not for any reason other than availability or, in one very uh, important case, ill health. Um, there's no... I mean, I, uh, John Gregory, who cut this film and also... Uh, another year actually cut um, High Hopes and Life is Sweet and Secrets and Lies are Naked. You know, sometimes in the film industry you can't always get to work with people. So it's only that. There's no um, other reason why that has there's been a... And are you in the editing room a lot? Or? Yes. Yes. But, you know, um, an editor, and a good editor, is the, just as a good cinematographer or a good... Uh, designer or costume designer or indeed a good actor is somebody who brings who takes responsibility and brings her or his uh, vision to the project even though finally it's my my vision that's the, the first and last word so to speak um, editors who would simply sit there and say okay tell me what to do and I'll carry out your every instruction to the letter are no use and similarly, obviously, editors who don't want to know what I think would equally be no use. Um, uh, so an editor like John Gregory or, or other editors that I've worked with um, are collaborators with whom you make the film. And there is no question that all films are made in the cutting room. Uh, anybody that thinks otherwise doesn't understand film. When you shoot a film, you are shooting raw material. You're shooting bits. They, they may, as in the case of my films, be pretty well organised. What goes to the cutting room is pretty well constructed and so on. But still, uh, it's about going to the cutting room with a, as huge a possible number of choices. And in the case of this film, uh, even notwithstanding the chronology of Turner's actual life, we still, when we put it together on the basis of what we'd shot, still, I mean, for example, historically and accurately, Turner didn't go down to Margate and meet the Booths, Mr. and Mrs. Booth, until after his father's death. And that was in the construction of the film. And we looked at it and we realised that it took far too long for that to happen. And that it, if we just allowed him to go down there earlier and 
when the, the old man's still alive, and then later to go back, after he's been through the trauma of the, his father's death and all of that, and she's there and she's a widow, it made more sense dramatically. Now, it, it um, laughs in the face of historical fact and chronology, but it actually, what I'm concerned with in the film is to get to the essence of the whole experience. It's not to doggedly log uh, historical data. Um, so all of those things are very much the contribution of the editor. I come and go to the cutting room like all directors. Um, I don't sit there all the time over the man looking over the man's shoulder. Uh, an editor will say, okay, I've got all that. We've talked about that. Go away. Don't come back till Thursday and I'll, um, uh, I'll do a bit and then we'll see where we go from there. And, and, and then you get down to the fine cutting and you sit there all the time and you absolutely work at it. Um, and parallel to all of that, um, the joy is to be working with the composer, experimenting with how... It, what the music will be and how it will fit in and uh, that is all part of pulling the film together and making the film. I mean, I think when I started realizing how important music was to your films, I began to understand the kind of realism that you're involved with in a different way. Um, in that, you know, this is not naked realism, I, I don't mean the name of the film. No, no. You know, it's not naturalism. It's not naturalism, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's the point. It, um, it's realism, not naturalism. It doesn't record this. It's naturalism. It doesn't just merely record the surface uh, quality of things. It actually, in some way, gets, tries to get to the essence of things and thus gives us the chance for it to feel real, even though it is, in fact, in various ways, uh, heightened and highly selective. And I thought the score for this film was extraordinary. It's great, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And in part because it isn't the 19th century. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I said to Gary Yershon, who composed the music, you know, I, I don't want faux uh, period music. There is natural music within the film, uh, in the action. Um, and, you know, who would have thought that the score of a film about J.M.W. Turner would be led by five saxophones, but it is, and it's it gets to the somehow to the spirit of the paintings in some way. I think we probably should open this up before we run out of time. Uh, question, yeah. Thank you. I don't know whether this would be antithetical to your methodology, but given what I take to be a somewhat novelistic approach over the years, have you ever considered? adapting perhaps classic literature as a mini-series, uh, working within that medium uh, of literary adaptation? No, I'm not in the business of adaptation. Um, it, I think it's a tall, adaptation is a tall order. Sometimes, very occasionally, people pull it off because there's a very good reason for them to adapt, a good personal reason for them to adapt a particular uh, novel or very occasionally play, but I'm a writer. I'm a maker up of stories on the whole, and I leave that to others. It's not my business, and I'm not interested in that. 
How do you go about choosing what story you're going to tell, what movie you're going to make next? Well, uh, you know, you can ask that anybody that tells stories. I mean, the fact is, in a way, it's... On one level, it's what story not to tell because there's so many... You know, I mean, it, 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 in the case of um, this film, Mr. Turner, or, or perhaps topsy-turvy, that's a choice to somehow do a film about these particular people and their activities and their art or whatever. But that's still not actually deciding what story to tell. It's just deciding to exp go on a journey of discovery, which making each film is, to discover what that story is. Um, there are some films I've made that have come out of particular direct experiences. One is Secrets and Lies, which, are, which came out of the fact that people close to me and my family, two people actually, uh, four people, two couples, um, had adoption-related experiences, and that led me to making that film. Uh, I'm old enough to remember what it was like in England and Wales at home before the 1967 Abortion Act, when people had unwanted pregnancies and there were backstreet abortionists around for a very long time, decades in fact, I had it in mind to make a film about that, which of course is what Vera Drake is. But um, on the whole, I really operate in a very instinctive and empirical kind of way and Almost invariably, when I'm starting to, or I'm working on a project with actors and it's all happening, and I'm starting to figure out what it really is that we're up to, I, I suddenly think to myself, oh, it's that theme again. <laughs> oh, uh, but I've already made that film. And, you know, uh, because I, I think, with reference to your question, although I, I don't consciously think about this, there are running themes that preoccupy me, but they come out in different ways. And one of the things I try and do um, from film to film to film is to, within my own very idiosyncratic genre, uh, is to make a different kind of film each time, uh, just on the basis that if I invite you around to dinner, uh, you don't expect me to dish up the same dish uh, every time. Well, and people, some people do that, I know, but that's usually because that's the only thing they can cook. <laughs> but um, are, any, are any of the films naked or happy-go-lucky inspired by the possibilities you see in an actor who you've already yes. been working with? Absolutely, that too. That's another, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's another element that, I mean, for example, it's a good one because um, uh, say, for example, Happy Go Lucky, uh, I, I had worked with Sally Hawkins a few times and, you know, I just thought, well, we need to make a film that puts her at the centre and that um, exploits her explosive energy. Uh, and that's, that was as much as I needed to know. Um, once we started to let that stimulate our imagination, a world came into existence which then dealt with issues, which, for example, it is a film about education on one level, and it's not the first time that I've implicitly dealt with that. Indeed, Naked itself um, 
is a lamentation on the fact that you know highly intelligent, highly intelligent guy like Johnny should be so uh, frustrated and disappointed with the world when he obviously could have been doing all sorts of things and obviously has been let down by an educational system somewhere along the line by people who haven't nurtured him and brought him out, which is a running preoccupation of mine, both as an ex-victim of education and as a parent. Mr. Lee, how has directing theater informed your, field, your, your film directing and vice versa? Well, I, I, I um, learnt skills making theater in the 60s in the first place, and indeed um, training as an actor and so forth. Uh, but... Um, uh, uh, and th th the practice of uh, spending a long time preparing, that's to say, in being in rehearsal, so to speak, is obviously something that I was able to discover in the theatre context, because that's what you do in the theatre context, whereas on the whole it's not the convention in films. Um, uh, also, I think it probably allowed me to discover to understand actors and acting and bring those things to filmmaking, um, really. But I, um, I suppose the other thing, I mean, filmmaking is filmmaking, and I mean, in the end, it's all about the film and the nature of film. I think when I do a stage play, which I do not that often, I did one a couple of years ago at the National Theatre and one a few years before that, in 2005, um, obviously there are, as a from a dramatic point of view, as a, from a dramatist point of view, I have some different responsibilities for what is required of the actor. Um, you know, you, you can even with my sort of films, you know, you can film bits and make things up spontaneously and even even though very I very seldom do this shoot something that is actually improvised on camera very rare most of what we shoot is very precisely scripted but you can and certainly what I don't have to worry about in constructing a film is that the is I've got I haven't to worry about the actor being able to get from A to Z um, in one go because in the end it's all going to be stuck together in the cutting room although we always obviously talk about know where we are in relation to that which went before and so forth. When I construct a play, it's a, there's a whole different set of responsibilities. The actor has to do it every night, come rain or shine, um, for a stretch of time, sometimes quite a long time. And the play has to be constructed in such a way as the actor can find his or her way through that. So there are different disciplines. And the disciplines of a stage play, which have to be disciplined, um, I think have taught me some skills as a dramatist, as a screen dramatist in the construction of films. Um, my question is inspired by um, something that you brought up earlier with the, the digital film. And I guess last night at the Inherent Vice premiere, Paul Thomas Anderson was I'm very... Sorry, I can't tell what you're saying. I'm, I'm sorry. Last night at the Inherent Vice premiere, Paul Thomas Anderson was very enthusiastic about 35mm. And there's sort of been into the 21st century this debate of how digital film affects sort of almost the integrity of film. And um, during a director's roundtable last year, Quentin Tarantino said he has no interest in digital film and he views that as TV in the movie theater. 
and David O. Russell replied, I don't even know what you're talking about. And okay. he was very like, they, they, were, they viewed that very differently. And so I guess my question is, did this film change the way you felt about digital film? And how, what is your opinion on that transition? Well, um, I, I, like all kinds of filmmakers of our various generations, I mean, I, I, we are 20th century men and women. We, are, we believe passionately in celluloid. We stand up and wave the flag for celluloid and no way will we ever uh, bow to the digital revolution, etc., etc. And that has always been a very healthy and um, uh, profoundly Luddite position to take. Um, <laughs> How has this changed my attitude? Well, it's educated me. Uh, the fact, however, is that we're living in the 21st century, and we're well into that particular uh, chunk of time. Uh, 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 and, you know, uh, laboratories are closing down, film laboratories, and this technology is not just some... The new technology, it's, just, it's not just some cranky kit that you can buy for a shilling at a cheap... Um, shop of some sort. I mean, it is a highly sophisticated set of tools that people have been working very hard to develop and, you know, advance. And once having embraced the possibilities of this technology, this tool, um, I've found, as other people have, that it's very exciting and rich and in no way a compromise. It is academic to compare it with Film. film is film, and what we, the films we can now make with this new medium, which really only makes sense if we liberate ourselves from a, this, the, the cobwebs of the good or bad argument and simply move on and make, and make it and enjoy it and make it. You know, when we were making this film, there would be the occasional discussion about this. And we'd say, oh, and indeed when we were even procrastinating about whether we should or shouldn't go down the digital route with this film, we'd say, what would Turner have said? Turner would be up for it. Turner was fascinated by new technology. Turner was, there was any new paint that came out, he was onto it, you know. Um, I didn't put it in the film, but metal tubes, squeezable tubes came in during the period of this film. Um, you know, so uh, how, how has it changed my attitude? It's simply educated me to the fact that it's very exciting and it's a tool to use. And, you know, we look forward to the coming years with great excitement. That doesn't mean that we're not nostalgic about film and we want to see old prints preserved and all the rest of it, but those two, these things are not finally mutually exclusive. And as for Quentin, you know, he's a cheeky bugger and he likes to make a fuss. <laughs> I want to ask you a question about screenplay structure because uh, I saw Gone Girl opening film festival and you could see the three-act structure just perfectly executed. There's the end of act one, incredible into act two, the climax. Your films don't seem to follow any sort of traditional Hollywood structure, and yet they feel complete and a sort of like a perfect structure. And I just wonder, how do you 
get through the story without following those sort of conventions, and yet it feels like a complete story with the beginning, a middle, and an end? Well, first of all, I thank you for recognizing that I've managed to pull it off without um, a, a kowtowing to this claptrap that comes out of Hollywood. Um, I mean, first of all, if I may say so, that you cannot avoid three acts. Because any story you tell has got the first section where you set up the premise, the, second, the status quo, the second section where you challenge the status quo, and the third section where you resolve the status quo. So it doesn't, it's not rocket science, and you don't need a highly paid wanker from Hollywood to, to tell you that. So that's the first thing. Secondly, I was making films and constructing plays before these fashions really uh, erupted like a cancer on the, uh, on the scene. Uh, actually, I think I've answered your question fairly adequately. Um, I've got a great deal of respect for these guys, and I wish they'd rot in hell. <laughs> and with that, thank you very much, Mike Lee. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Brian Brooks, Nick Kemp, and Michael Oatmark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>